Welcome, moms. My name is Julene Jackson. Oh, I am so excited to have you all with us. I want you to know you span you spanned America. You're on the East Coast, you're on the West Coast, and everywhere in between. We are on our second round of Healing of America seminars. We are going to teach a summer series of these Healing of America seminars. They're 16 weeks. And I know that you're going to have vacations and all kinds of activities intermingled with your summer. We'll actually even go into uh, September with our classes and just hop online. It'll just be one hour a week. And I think that it will really kind of bless your lives and augment you and help you kind of pump you up and give you some vision and focus uh, about how you want to proceed to teach your children and grandchildren in an environment where I know we mamas are worried. And that's probably one of the reasons that you're on our call today. I have been involved with Moms for America for over a decade now. Really, Moms for America's whole premise is that liberty begins at home. And when mama loves America and our founding fathers in this nation, and when she understands the stories and the miracles of America, her children will know, her grandchildren will know. How will we be able to perpetuate what our founding fathers gave us if we don't know what they gave us. And this is what we're going to learn together as women across America. We're gonna learn these great stories and miracles of America. I'm a mother of seven children, two of my little babes. I lost in infancy, my first babe, he lived for a month. My last little seventh babe at 40 was a full-term stillborn, but I, I, I count every single one of them that passed through the birthing canal. <laughs> So I have five very wild and alive children, ages 26 on down to 13. I only have uh, two left at home. Three of them have flown the coop. And then we've got wonderful Vivian on the call. She is our manager of our Cottage Meeting Project National and Moms Link. So if you ever have any questions about, you know, how to sign up or how to sign up your friends or family, uh, mom, uh, Vivian is the gal that you uh, want to go to. So, and she's based out of San Antonio, Texas. I'm in Chevy Chase, Maryland, but I'm actually in um, Austin, Texas today at a conference for the Heritage Foundation representing Moms for America. So I'm just teaching in my little hotel room right now. You know, about 13 years ago, I moved my family from Washington, D.C. to a small town called Hood River, Oregon, on um, uh, the river there, Hood River, or Hood River. And um, we mamas were worried about what our children were being taught in school, kind of like the, the globalness of the world and not to really reverence or respect, you know, the exceptionalism of the United States and our founders. So one of the mamas in town who I knew said that she'd watched a program, Glenn Beck, and he held up a book, The 5,000-Year Leap. I wish I had my book with me, but I didn't bring it with me um, today. Oh, very good. The 5,000-Year Leap book, uh, book. Thanks, Sheree. And he said, moms, you need to start to get together and study these 28 principles that made, you know, America what it is today and begin to teach them to your children. So once a month, we mamas would get together and we began to study these principles. And every single one that was just about six to eight mothers, once a month, we would go home and we began to teach our children. Some mamas taught their kids at the dinner table, a principle of liberty, some before they went to bed. I would teach um, my children a principle of liberty out of the 5,000 year leap in the morning. I'd have a little devotional in the morning. I had high school age, middle school, elementary, and a baby at my breast. And so we'd have a little morning devotional where I teach them a little story out of the Bible. And I began to teach them uh, stories from America history. And we'd sing a little gospel song. We would kneel together as a family, pray, and I'd get them off for the day. And, um, it, is, it was amazing to see how all of us mamas began to be transformed from that experience of joining together once a month. Like-minded mamas love God, love their family, love this country, and worry, not knowing what to do. And so when I moved out of that little town about a year later, I moved to um, Lehigh, Utah, and I decided to start a little study group there because I knew the power of mothers meeting together in Oregon. And those women meet today, every Wednesday, they are meeting almost now, I think, 
930 uh, Utah time. And they meet from 930 to 1130 and have for over a decade. And if I could tell you some of the things, no one was a law, law student, no one was a constitutional scholar or historians. They were just mothers and grandmothers worried about this nation and their children. And they have come together and, and they have used some of our curriculum to teach and study. They've used other curriculums. When mothers come together wanting to study and learn, you always, there will always be things, you, you will never run out of things to study. Moms for America has a wonderful 12 introductory lessons to, to get you started on cottage meetings. So during the pandemic, we started teaching these classes online. And so we will probably just keep up our online uh, classes because we can reach mamas, so many mamas around the country. And then what happens is when you, you know, go through our 12 introductory lessons, where maybe you're finished with the 16 week class of healing of America that we're starting today, you know, maybe you'll feel like, hey, I think I have four or five women that feel the way I do. Maybe I'll start my own little cottage meeting in my neighborhood. Maybe we'll meet once a month. Maybe we'll meet once a week, whatever your needs are. And so the whole idea is we're going to come together in this Healing of America series. And you're going to, I promise you, ladies, you're going to be changed after this experience. God rewards efforts. And as you put in the effort each week to show up and to learn, you, he's going to be able to work on your heart and you're going to begin to be anchored in hope, even if there's crazy stories going on in the headlines right now, and you're clutching your bosom and you're getting mad at some of the things that you're seeing. If mama is anchored in hope, her husband will be anchored, her children, her grandchildren, you will be a great stabilizing force. And we're going to talk so much about instead of looking to government, to President Biden, uh, to political leaders to solve our problems and to deliver us from our issues, we are going to be reminded we look to God for freedom, for healing, for deliverance. We look to, you know, the power of prayer and the study of his word. And then we're going to teach our children and our grandchildren these things we're learning about God. We're going to make family time a high priority. And, I, you know, in the summer, we do a lot of fun things together. And I'm, I, I, you know, bowling and swimming and all those shopping is fun, but we're going to, we're going to be able to really teach them the things that matter the most that will arm them up when they go out back to school or out in the world or their college or their first professional job. And then girls in this series, I'm going to teach you the constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers. They said this constitution was struck off by the hand of God. It was divinely inspired and God will be with those that will perpetuate and learn these uh, ideals and these rights and freedoms that are so beautifully put in the constitution. And we're also gonna talk about parts of the constitution that came after our founding fathers. And there are some very uninspired parts of the constitution that need to be revoked that has, has caused a great disruption of the checks and balances. And we'll talk about that. And I promise you girls, after seminar two, which is the constitution, you will know more about the constitution than probably most everyone around you, probably even more than some of your elected leaders. And so I love seminar two because we learn the, the constitution from the viewpoint of the founders. And then girls, if you will do those things, those three things, look to God, keep your family close, learn these principles and values that our founders gave us. Number four is you will do something. You will know what to do. God will put in your heart. Should I keep learning with Moms for America? Just showing up here in your class today is telling me that you're probably already done some of those first three things that have led you to do something, to show up, to get on that wall. Should I start my own little cottage meeting? Should I uh, join one? Should I start an, or should I join another uh, organization in my community? Should I you know, support this candidate? Should I run for office? We've got one of the moms from last Healing of America seminar, Sam from Pennsylvania. She was a couple of classes into our Healing of America seminar. An opportunity was presented to her to run for the school board. She said, you know, she, she knew that this maybe was her opportunity to do something. And she took it and she won her primaries. And it looks like she's going to win that uh, election in the fall. If she won her primaries, pretty good chance she's going to win. So I'm telling you, I'm just warning you, 
be ready for God to perform miracles in, in a ways that doors are closed right now that might open over the next 16 weeks and might just open within your own home. There might be some healing that needed to go on with some children or a marriage or something. God is going to, to touch and prick your heart in some way. And so girls, the, the author of these seminars is Cleon Skousen. And he was a best-selling author, has written many books. He went to law school. He was a, a college professor. He was a chief of police. He worked for the FBI for 17 years. Cleon Skousen was also a, an associate with presidents. He was very close friends with Ronald Reagan and helped shape policy in the 80s. And he's met with popes and world leaders. And he has written uh, much of these seminars here. These seminars, it's, it's a series of four seminars. So you will have four books. Hopefully, this is the very first book, God's Hand in Building of America. Hopefully, you, you have your little workbook. It's fill in the blank. They're $12. You can buy them at our Moms for America store. We have ran out of them because we've had a, a good turnout of people, of mamas that signed up for this class. So you can also purchase them at KimberCurriculum.com. We should have more on our mom's store right now. They're on their way, but they're $12. You'll probably just go ahead and get all four of them. So you have them in your home, but it's fill in the blank. You'll notice each week we will do one section. So we're going to do section one of seminar one today. And the whole idea of filling in the blank is you retain more when you have a multi-sensory experience, when you hear it, when you write it, when you can see it, um, when you listen to it. And so, and if you, it's, it's been shown in studies that if you use cursive instead of print, there's actually an emotional connection that your brain makes. That's the power of cursive. And it's a shame kids do not know how to write cursive anymore, but you actually remember and retain more when you have that kind of fluid uh, uh, flow uh, of a cursive. So keep that in mind. Um, normally it would take 12 hours to go through one seminar, but I'm we, we go through the seminar, the whole seminar here in four hours. So one hour each week for four weeks, and we will be finished with this first seminar, God's Hand in Building of America. And so what that means is I'm not going to go through each line by line and fill in the blanks for you, which I normally would if I had 12 hours to teach this. So you'll have to do your homework, girls. You can do it every day. I study a uh, uh, liberty for uh, about 15, 20 minutes. When I'm teaching, I study a little bit more. But if you can just kind of get in the habit, just like you might read a little verse from the Bible every day, if you can work in your little workbook for about 15 minutes every day and just have that be a lifetime study, because then you will it will be natural to want to share these stories with your children and your grandchildren through the years if you include that in your own personal self-study. And so Dr. Skousen, when asked, he said, you know, uh, are you a little pessimistic about what's going on in the world? And he said, no, I'm not. He said, I think the soul of America is going to be cleansed by events which will humble the nation and put them back on their knees where they can talk to God. And he, he references that beautiful verse in the Bible in 2 Chronicles 2, 7, 14, that says, if my people will humble themselves, turn back to me and pray and seek my face and uh, repent, turn from their wicked ways, I will for forgive them. And I will heal your land. That is the promise that God has given us. If people, his people will do that. And so um, that will be a part of justifying the heavens to intervene and allowing God's promise to be fulfilled in this land. And he didn't say uh, if the majority of the people will do this. He's just saying if my people. Now, remember, it was only about 3% of the people that rose up during the time of the American Revolutionary War and, and fought on the side of freedom. 97%, 3% were for England and 94% were just kind of apathetic we have a lot of apathy in the world going on right now. So if he can just get enough people, remember Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord said, just give me 10 and I will save your city. So if there are enough mamas like you that are praying and studying and teaching your children and learning these principles and doing something, that will be enough. I have complete faith 
for God to intervene and help heal our land. Now, Dr. Um, Skousen says, I know there's the people of the world, well, the skeptics, the uh, political sophisticates, the cynics will just mock and laugh at this scripture here. But he said, God will not be mocked. And if we do not turn from our wicked ways in this blessed country, from if we, turn, if we don't turn from the crime and the drugs and the abortion and, and the political corruption, there will be a crisis and there will be a cleansing. So mamas, what do we do in the meantime as we see all this commotion going on in the world? Dr. Skousen says you don't need to be pessimist, but you do need to be realist. Every family needs to do what they can to put its house in order because your home might be the only refuge that your children and your grandchildren will have to come. It will be the parents um, trying to be a good example of God that will, will rise up and really be the staff upon which the nation will lean. He said, Dr. Skousen said, when I see families struggling to build these kind of bonds of trust and love, I know they are paying the dividends for the kind of insurance that will hold them together through the years and through the pressures and the trials that that little family will experience. I was just talking to a friend the other day and she told me she has a 20 year old daughter and she went on Instagram and saw her daughter had posted a picture of her in a, a bikini that she was showing a little too much skin. And she, she said, I think these young girls are watching too much Bachelorette and are thinking some of their self-worth is based on their body image. And so she brought that little daughter in and they talked through and said, honey, you're a daughter of God. You don't need to do this. And because they had that kind of rapport, that little girl took the picture off. Another friend recently told me her 16-year-old son was getting inappropriate pictures from a girl. And the spirit led her to know something was amiss with that boy when he was looking at his phone one time. And she said, what are you doing? And he put it quickly behind his back. And the spirit led her instead of just going, not making anything of it, saying, honey, let me see that phone. And sure enough, she was shocked, shocked to see what was being sent to her son. So that daddy and that mommy brought that uh, young man together and they spoke and they talked about what was going on and what he could do to prevent those kind of things. So what I'm saying here, mamas, even good families that are trying to be God-fearing and to study the word together and to be close, there are fiery darts of the world just coming on into our families. But if we're on a regular basis gathering these children and teaching them biblical ideas and principles, and if we're praying with these kids, we'll be able to correct and stop some of this stuff at the pass. So when Dr. Skousen, they say, why are you so optimistic? And he says, because I have read the book and in the end, we win. We win, mamas. Don't lose sight of that. And so he said, if we will do our part, God will rise up and he will save this nation. He will save these homes and these communities. And so this is what we're going to be talking about in this first seminar, how God rose up and performed the miracles amongst people who were willing to, to hearken to his voice. And um, we will understand when you get through with the end of this seminar, the next four weeks, that God in heaven, you will have confidence that he didn't establish this first free people in modern times just to see it collapse into oblivion. America will be saved, but it will be saved, my beautiful mamas, by people like you who are going to take the time and the energy to learn about at the founding of this nation, the founding of our uh, great founding fathers and mothers and the sacrifices uh, that they made and the principles that they gave us and that we will be willing to do our part and work to preserve and to kind of keep these principles perpetuated uh, and implemented. The second seminar in four weeks from now, we will learn the constitution. And then the third seminar, we're going to learn what in the world has happened. Why are we in this predicament? Uh, in the last hundred years, there have been master planners, groups, people, uh, entities that have specifically tried, not tried, they are succeeding in changing the direction of America from what our founders gave us. And we'll talk about uh, these entities and, and these uh, people that have undone uh, a lot of, of what 
God intended for this nation. And then I love seminar four. It is all right. It is about how we're going to go about healing this land. How do we heal our family? What do we do within the four walls of our home? How can we make an impact in our neighborhoods, in, in our little schools, in our communities, at the state legislature, and even beyond? And, uh, and so I'm sure that our founding fathers today, our founding mothers specifically, are rejoicing that there are women like you. You're going to be like the refounding mothers uh, that will take us back to some of these lost values and ideals. I think they would probably consider what we're going to learn over the next few weeks, some of the most important parts of the study, because it covers a real tempestuous, tempestuous, there you go, period, that gave birth to this great American heritage. And I know we're kind of feeling like we're living in these similar perilous days that they had to uh, navigate. So over 240 years ago, our little founding fathers were completely aware that all mankind is really, we're all just seeking the same things. We're seeking freedom. We're seeking a prosperity to be able to live comfortably. And we're, we're seeking peace to feel safe in our communities. But they set out to find a government that would provide these things, but there really wasn't such a government in the 1700s that did those things. And so they had to sit down and invent one. And that is what we're going to talk about today. This is their story that we will be studying the next few weeks. And I think it'll be very clear to you, very evident that without God's help, this could have never happened. I love as we study the miracles during seminar one, it reminds us, it revives our faith in miracles because it's going to take a miracle to scale some of the mountains that are before us here. Now you will see Glenn Kimber. So I'm, I'm reading through the, some of the introduction of seminar one. If you have your manuals, I hope you do. And Glenn Kimber is actually the son-in-law of Cleon Skousen. And Glenn Kimber is the head of the Thomas Jefferson Center for constitutional studies that we're taking this uh, series curriculum from the next 16 weeks. He teaches these seminars exactly what you're getting from me, but he teaches them. You're getting the four-hour version. He teaches each seminar 30 hours. I mean, he goes through each paragraph, each sentence. He fills in the blanks. He gives you so much information. So just log that in your mind. You might eventually want to sign up. I think I think it costs a little bit of money to take those seminars, but it might be worth the investment someday. And you can just go to their website right there. Or um, I think it's KimberAcademyNational.com if you want to take these classes uh, again at some point uh, at a little bit longer, more in detail uh, classes. Okay, girls, whew, we are ready. Are we at seminar uh, section 1.1? Are your books ready? Let's turn to it, the events and the people who prepared the way for freedom. It talks about how the Crusades, those Crusaders, have you ever heard of those folks, led to the discovery of America. During about the time period of 1100 AD, the, these Europeans, these Christians, in the name of God, were massacring and pillaging the Middle Eastern uh, uh, Muslims in the Holy Land because they wanted to get them out of the Holy Land. They felt like that is something they needed. And for 300 years, these battles went back and forth and eventually the Crusaders failed. But what it did do is over the course of those hundreds of years, it, it brought into contact these uh, Crusaders from Europe into um, contact with the Mediterranean people and it introduced them to some of the luxuries of the Far East of China and Asia, the spices, the rugs, the jewelries, the fabrics. And so uh, as time progressed, the Europeans wanted to purchase these luxuries instead of having to go uh, through Arab merchants. They wanted to discover trade routes that would allow them to go right to China and Indonesia directly. 
And so during this time period, about 1200, 1271 AD, a young boy by the name of Marco Polo. If I could tell you all the Marco Polo I played in the swimming pools with my kids in the summer, and now I'm actually learning the true story of Marco Polo. At 17, he went with his daddy. He left Italy, Venice, Italy, where he was from, and he was gone 20 years. And he explored with his father the great trade routes of China. And he would go on to write, Marco Polo would write a book called The Marvels of the World about the adventures that he had in those parts of the world. And 200 years later, a young boy by the name of Christopher Columbus would be inspired by Marco Polo's writings. And he too longed for the sea and to explore. So this is what was going on at this time of the world. We're going to talk about the explorations. And there was a couple of them that had a monumental impact or would have have on uh, the freedom that was going to try and take root here in the Americas. So we're going to focus on what was going on at this time period in England, in France, and Spain. We're going to learn their stories and see how they contributed to the founding of America in 1776. So in England, uh, the English were just about the only Europeans who fought to preserve the basic institutes of the Anglo-Saxon culture under people's law. Many people believe, I believe this as well, that the Anglo-Saxons in England in about 450 AD were some of the remnants of the lost tribes of Israel. Remember 700 BC when the Assyrians swooped in and scattered the 10 tribes of Israel? There was a group that made their way up to the north, kind of the, the Scandinavian countries that they would become. And they would base, they would use the principles of governance that they had had you know, held in the biblical times that you can actually find in Deuteronomy and Exodus and Genesis that Moses uh, established among the people that he led those children of Israel out into the wilderness out of Egypt. And really Moses, it came up with the first idea of representative government when, you know, there was 3 million of uh, the Hebrews that he led across the desert. And so he was spending all his time in his tent, taking care of everyone's problems. And his father-in-law said, Jethro, you're going to wear yourself out. And so uh, Moses was inspired to make captains of 10 families and then captains of fifties and hundreds and thousands and 10,000s. And then the most important, biggest problems would be dealt with at his, uh, with him, but mostly the problems would be solved at the local levels amongst the little groupings of tens or fifties. And that was the first form of representative government by the voice of the people. They would uh, kind of, you know, discern how they should take care of problems and to lead out. And so those, and that's called people's law. And so we find people's law amongst the Anglo-Saxons. And then over the course of, uh, you know, three, four, 500 years, there began to be great warrings amongst the Anglo-Saxons, the God-fearing people, and the Vikings, the people, uh, the Danes, they, who were fierce fighters and kind of pagan fellows, barbarian, by barbarian pirates from Denmark kind of thing. And the Normans who were, uh, came from um, uh, uh, these pagan Viking, Vikings actually uh, conquered England in 1060. And they brought in their uh, feudal law with ruler's law of masters and, and that kind of thing, which completely corrupted the Anglo-Saxon system, this people's law. And people's law is based on God's law. And so um, can I just give you a recommendation, ladies? I'm going to give you recommendations throughout our classes. One of the mamas uh, from uh, Moms for America said, Jolene, there is a series called The Last Kingdom on Netflix, and they have five seasons. And it's based on Bernard Cornwall's The Saxon Stories. And it's the history and relationships between the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons. And so I'm going to give you a heads up, though. This is a series you probably don't want to watch with your children because of the violence and the sex. Have you ever had your kids go to a movie and they come home and they go, Mom, it was such a good movie, except for the violence and the sex. 
Well, that's what this series is, but it's fascinating because you see that warring over a period. I think the the series takes place about 866 AD over about a 50, 60 year period, but it's kind of fascinating. And I, I think I'm on season four and season five will, will come out. Uh, it's being filmed right now. So just log that, uh, The Last Kingdom uh, on Netflix. And if it's a little, to be honest with you, I watch one season, then I'm like, oh no, I, I can't watch anymore. And then we <laughs> let a little time go and we got back to it. But it just has to deal with the Anglo-Saxons at that time period. So, um, so the Normans conquer England and then because of these real oppressive policies under ruler's law in 1215, some of the English barons rise up against King John and they force him to sign the Magna Carta, which is really known as the Magnificent Charter. And it was these great inspired documents from England, the Petition of Writs that would come along in the 1600s and their Bill of Rights that our founders, as they were studying the governments and civilizations throughout history, trying to figure out how they should form ours, they took these statements and these words from the Magna Carta and these great English inspired documents and, and put them into our Declaration of Independence and Constitution, these phrases and ideas that we associate with um, freedom today. Day. So that was what was going on in England. Um, let's, let's now look at France. In about the 1400s, there was a major war going on between England and France. And England had invaded France to a degree that they had actually dethroned the, um, the king. And the, the French crown prince called the Dauphin was in hiding, the young crown prince. And France was really in a state of chaos at this point. And little would they know that God would rise up a little girl by the name of Joan of Arc, ages 13, to liberate their entire country. I mean, you wouldn't almost believe it if you didn't know the history. Joan of Arc, much of what is taken about her story in the seminar comes from the New Advent Catholic Encyclopedia. And she was born in 1412 in Doremi. Has anyone been there? That's on my bucket list to go to the little hometown in France of Doremi in Champagne. Uh, pl please forgive me. I'm going to slaughter these French names. But um, Joan, uh, she was uh, came from a family of five. She was the youngest, a small little a pheasant family. Of, they were poor, but they were not needy. Now, little Joan, she didn't even know how to read and write. She was skilled in sewing and spinning. She was a singular, singularly pious little child who would go to church often and would kneel at the little altar. And she loved the poor tenderly. I don't know if you've had a chance to really delve into Joan of Arc. Mark Twain wrote a book about Joan of Arc. And he said it was the book that he was most proud of writing. It took him, I think, 12 years to research Joan of Arc and then two years to write this book. But little Joan of Arc at the age of 13 began to hear voices. They came to her. She would call them her counsel. And at first they were just little voices. And then they began to like be a blaze of light accompanied by the voices. And then they began to appear in in person, St. Michael and other angels, St. Margaret and St. Catherine, they were prominent women uh, around 200, 300 AD. They were uh, both uh, martyrs. And, um, and so at her little trial, she actually made the statement, I saw them with my very eyes, as well as I see you right now. So gradually these voices over the course of a few years came to her, uh, this call of God making known what he was needing her to do. And then when she was 16, the, um, they told her to go to the captain of the Royal Guard. His name was Robert Baudricourt and let him know that they needed to speak, to have an audience with the, the Dauphin, uh, Charles, the, uh, Charles the, let's see, the seventh there. And so when, when they met with Baudricourt, he was rude and he was a degenerate uh, fellow and he just laughed at her and he said, take her home and have her father give her a good whipping. And in the meantime, um, 
the situation with the King Charles and her, his supporters were growing quite desperate and Orleans was raided in 1428 and her voices at this point at 16 are urgent. And she said, Lord, I don't even know how to even ride a horse really well. You want me to lead men into battle? And the voices reiterated, it is God. Remember, Joan, it is God that is commanding you to do this. And as I have read the story, I have often thought, Lord, I am just a mama. What can I do to make a difference in my community and in this nation? And I think we just need to remember through these great stories that the Lord works through small and simple and little obscure mamas in humble situations to bring about his purposes because we see this played out with little Joan of Arc. And so her voices, her counsel told her to dress like a man in a, in a costume of, of a man to protect her virtue because she was going to go into a very rough environment of this camp. And, and all throughout the rest of her life, she slept in her little clothes. In fact, her little voices told her how to wear um, two sets of uh, little cloth around her little loin area to protect her virtue and how to tie them with ropes. So in 1429, uh, I believe she's probably about eight, uh, 1429, she's probably about 18, 17, 18, 19. Um, God shows her exactly where the king is. And so she goes to Chinon and, um, and she says, if you do not let me see the king, I'm going to let the crown prince, I'm going to let everyone know where he is. And so they thought she was just this crazy little visionary girl, but they let her in into a, a group setting. And the king was actually, the young crown prince was disguised and she went right to him. She knew who he was. And there she made known to the crown prince a secret sign that had been communicated to her by the voices and this led the king to have to concede and to allow her to do what she was proposing. Many people believe the sign was that she saw him praying the night or a few days before to the Lord, pleading to spare his land of France. Take me if you need to, God, but please preserve France. And so she reiterated, they believe this was the sign that she told him. And so she got ready. She was given a... Uh, what she needed. She made preparations to lead the French armies and they were going to give her a sword. And she said, there's an ancient sword be behind the altar of the St. Catherine's church. And, and sure enough, she found, they don't know the origins where it came from, but there was this, maybe it was St. Catherine's sword who was killed in 300 AD. So she had St. Catherine's sword. And then they made her a standard with the name Jesus and a picture of uh, Maria, Mary, and um, a picture of God kneeling with uh, kneeling angels presenting the French symbol, the flower of light. And she carried this banner with her into battle. And she says, I love the sword because I found it in the church of St. Catherine, whom I adored, she said. But I love my banner 40 times more because I carried that banner everywhere I went against the, the enemy and that was the standard by which she followed and she had others follow. And so she summoned her men, initially uh, the King of England to withdraw his troops from the French soil. And they just thought the audacity of this young little girl to make this kind of demands. And so Joan and her army entered Orleans on the 30th of April. Her presence there worked wonders. They were able to take back the city. They encircled it. They captured it. They moved on to Troy and then on to, to Rems, Reims. So oftentimes at, at that point in history, the commander in those days in, in battle and war never led from the front. They hung out in the back. But little Joan of Arc led from the front and some people, you know, these, these soldiers said, who do you think you have the nerve? Who do you think is going to follow you? And she said, I love this. She said, I will not be looking back. And once again, you know, we think of all the times that we've had to, you know, teach our children, our teenagers, our adult children, people out in the community that are just rolling their eyes and <laughs> mocking. And we just kind of have to go forward under the inspir inspiration and convictions that God gives us. 
and hope that our children will follow their mama who's trying to lead them in ways of protection and righteousness. I love that example. I will not be looking back. I am leading from the front as we mamas so often have to do in our home. So Joan knew that only immoral people would fight for God. This was a little girl that was called of God. There were women in that day that were servicing the soldiers in these camps or as prostitutes. And she told these women that they either had to leave immediately or they would die. And to the men, she said, if you are not going to be honorable to your wives, you must leave immediately. This was the standard that Joan of Arc set. She said that when you are in the army of freedom, you are in God's army and immorality and vulgarity cannot be tolerated. It's so interesting. Some 300 years later, George Washington would establish that same military code of conduct following that standard of Joan of Arc when he established morality in his little ragtag army uh, during the revolutionary times, because he knew that if he was going to justify the heavens to intervene, he needed a righteous man uh, so they could be blessed and God could intervene. It's so interesting in 1993, ladies, um, that policy of George Washington's, that military code of conduct was still in place until 1993 under uh, the then President Clinton. They established a don't ask, don't tell policy, which became the new U.S. military policy. And now we have, uh, you know, no policy anymore. In 2011, under President Obama, he ended the don't ask, don't tell. And now you can practice any form of morality you want openly in the military. And, um, and that's, that's scary, because we want, we want to be able to justify the heavens to stand in and to protect us. But how can we, if we're not living by God's law? And so anyways, at this point, when um, when they took, little Joan of Arc took the town of Rams, the crown prince was able, uh, they captured the town and he was solemnly crowned again. They began to make great headway and he was now reigning openly as, as the uh, king of France. And so little Joan wanted to go home. She had been fighting for several months, but her officers pleaded with her to stay. They felt like there was still work to be done. And so um, her voices warned her. They said, Joan, you're going to be taken prisoner as you stay. And sure enough, the following May, she and about a small little group of 500 were fighting uh, against the troops in Burgundy and they were heading towards the fort and somehow the drawbridge came up and she was left outside. She was pulled from her horse and they believe it was a French trader who was in league with the English that, that uh, did this. And, and he was paid a sum of several hundreds of thousands of dollars that would be equivalent to modern money uh, to, to, to make this happen. He sold her to England and um, they put her on trial. They didn't want to try her in a secular court for beating them because they were ashamed of it would maybe elevate her status and make her, you know, larger than life than many, uh, you know, that they were already afraid she had become. And so they said, let's, let's judge her in a church court as a, a sentence her as a witch or a, or a heretic for cross-dressing or hearing voices or, you know, pretending to be a man. Maybe she's a lesbian. They even tried that. So they falsely accused her uh, of, of all of these kind of things, trying to get her to deny uh, these voices that she had. And she would not. She would not. And so they agreed unanimously. I'm kind of parring this down a little bit, but that she would indeed be burned at the cross. And she requested before this to be done uh, to a white dress. And she symbolized to her, her virtue and her, her morality. And she was allowed to make her little confession and to receive a communion at the end. And it says her demeanor at the stake was such as to move even her bitter enemies uh, to tears as she held that little cross up against her chest. And until she declared, until the last she declared her voices came from God and that they had not deceived her. 
And then her ashes were thrown into the river Seine so that no one, you know, would be able to uh, venerate her grave um, and hopefully not honor her. That was what they were thinking. It only took 24 years before the Catholic Church had a rehabilitation court to rehabilitate and, and to um, reverse and annul the sentence that had been pronounced. And she was made a saint in 19. 09 uh, by the current Pope at that time. So girls, it's really important for you to understand that had there not been a France, if Joan had not saved France, we probably might not have existed because 300, maybe the Lord would have risen up someone else, but we see how the Lord worked through little Joan. Because of Joan, France survived. And 350 years later, when we were battling during the Revolutionary War at Yorktown, who would come and save us but the, the fleet from France, their Navy, and we were able to win that battle at Yorktown, which just sealed the deal and won the war for us because of the French help at uh, Yorktown. If you ever get a chance to go to Yorktown, put it on your bucket list. It's down in Virginia, about two and a half hours from Washington, D.C. So that is the miracle of how God used this little 13-year-old uh, to save France, which then France went and saved America during a real critical point in the Revolutionary War. Girls, I'm going to make another recommendation. About a couple months ago, me and my little daughter watched a reenactment of Joan of Arc. I think it came out in 2019. BYU, just Google BYU Joan of Arc, and up comes this little story. Uh, I think it was in conjunction with three religious universities that produced the story of Joan of Arc. And it's a little bit over an hour. Just Google it. You can pull it up on your smart TV and watch it on your big screen. But she, uh, my little 13-year-old, and I watched it. And we actually clapped at the end of the movie. It was so good. She's like, Mom, that was such a good story. And so I would really have that be one of your movie nights this summer. Pop that popcorn, glory you like to have those movie nights and show these kind of films. So I would highly recommend uh, BYU TV, Joan of Arc, Google it up. It will come on YouTube and watch that with your kitties. Okay, girls, we're humming right along. Um, so now we're going to talk about Christopher Columbus. There was for 800 years, this war between the Moors and the Christian Spaniards. And finally, the general of the uh, Muslims, kind of like the, um, the Crusades, it was took on this real religious fervor. The Muslims in um, the Mediterranean and Spain and those regions. So anyways, he surrenders. And so the king and queen, Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain are, are deeply humbled that this you know 800 year war has come to an end. And so God, they, they recognized that they felt that it was an intervention of God. So right at this time, Christopher Columbus comes to them and requests that they fund the voyages that he has felt led to take. And they did, they funded those three ships. And Christopher Columbus, uh, as a young boy at 14, he says in his writings that I've, I've heard, he, he says it was Jesus Christ. Some people have said it's angels appeared to him and told him as a young boy, much like Joan, that there were other sheep which were not of this fold and you were to go to them and teach them of me and my ways. So that was at the core of his motivation for going and doing. And when he launched those three ships, uh, in 1492, in that in that time frame, he was on the, at sea for 286 days with that first voyage. He actually insisted on having interpreters that spoke Hebrew because he felt like he was going to go to some of those lost tribes of Israel and to teach them, uh, continue to teach them. And when he came back from his first voyage and reported to the king and queen of Spain, he said, I come to your majesty as an emissary of the Holy Ghost. He explained to them, it was the Lord who put into my mind and could feel his hand upon me. He said, all who heard of my project rejected it with laughter and ridiculed me. But thank you. He said, there was no question that the inspiration came from the Holy Ghost. 
He said, I wasn't led by my smarts because at this point he had studied maps and the sea for years, but he said, it wasn't my maps or my mathematics or intelligence. It was the fulfillment of Isaiah, uh, you know, uh, how um, throughout Isaiah, and then he quotes Isaiah 2, 42, chapter 55, that all nations would flow into a land. And so, um, it's so interesting. We know Christopher Columbus, he had four voyages and modern day historians have depicted Columbus in such a bad light. And we don't even, a lot of cities and states are not even calling Christopher Columbus October 12th, Christopher Columbus Day anymore. It's just Indigenous People Day. And we have seen over the last year or so uh, statues of Christopher Columbus in Richmond and Minneapolis. And just in April, there's a beautiful Christopher Columbus statue in front of Union Station in Washington, D.C. And that was desecrated with spray paint, accusing Columbus of genocide, of destroying civilizations and wiping out people. And, you know, he had four voyages and oftentimes he left some of those men in, you know, the West Indies and these places, Puerto Rico and places that he was landing and they would go back to Spain and some of those men treated the natives very well and some of them did not. But his heart was led because he said God had told him to do this, had directed him, and that the Holy Ghost helped him to find these other sheep and to begin to discover and colonize this land. He had no idea really what his purpose was. He couldn't have imagined 300 years later this land of freedom of America would be established because what he did. Now, Christopher Columbus died kind of at a, as a young man at age 55, but at this point, the Spanish... Uh, uh, nation was off to the races as far as exploring the Western Hemisphere. We had um, Cortez uh, conquering Mexico and Pizarro, Peru, and uh, Ponce de Leon discovered Florida and DeSoto, discovered the Mississippi River. And it's so interesting, I was in Puerto Rico uh, a twice in the last few months. And there's beautiful statues of Christopher Columbus all over that town, big forts named after Christopher Columbus. He named uh, Puerto Rico actually after St. John the Baptist. And there's a beautiful cathedral that exists in old San Juan called the San Juan Batista. And Ponce de Leon is actually buried there. And so it's interesting how they revere Christopher Columbus in Puerto Rico. So the Spanish were, were unstoppable during the 1500s. They kind of owned, you know, exploration of the 1500s. And um, who stopped them, though, in the 1600s? It was the French. Uh, the 1500s belonged to the Spanish. The 1600s belonged to the French. We got Cartier um, colonizing uh, up in Canada, Montreal, uh, De La Salle, um, founding New Orleans along the Mississippi. So the French in the 1600s brought over about 80,000 settlers and they kind of controlled the waterways and the heartland of North America, which made it impossible for the Spaniards to proceed up from Florida. Fortunately, the Spaniards were so busy collecting gold and silver in Mexico and South America that they didn't uh, really have too many battles with the French. But what it allowed to happen is for the English who were trying to flee some of this harsh ruler's law in the 15, in the 16, 1600s uh, to come now and start to populate the little East Coast seaboard there. And by 1776, there were over 3 million English colonists that were on that uh, Atlantic seaboard. So we know uh, the English were starting to come over in the 1600s. The first little settlement landed in Roanoke, um, North Carolina, and then they just disappeared. They believed disease took them. And then there was a second colony and they just, they, they, they're called the Lost Colony. There's a wonderful musical every year at the beach, at Roanoke. It's called the Lost Colony at the Outer Banks. And it tells the story of this group of English people that just vanquished. And then uh, a couple of decades later in the 1600s, um, 1607, actually, we've got the um, King James is attempting to head off the Spanish by allowing a group of London 
businessman to set up a colony in Virginia known as Jamestown. And Jamestown and Yorktown are only about 20 minutes away from each other. They're both about two and a half hours from Washington, D.C. They have beautiful visitor centers and they uh, recreated the little villages and towns and the ships. And it's magnificent. Put it on your bucket list, a field trip. Instead of going to Disneyland at Disney World, go to some of these sites, Jamestown. It's uh, You can spend the whole day there. And they... Uh, they practiced uh, secular communism, and that didn't work so well when everyone had to share everything because some people just didn't want to work as hard when you don't own your stuff. And so it wasn't until everyone was given parcels of land that Jamestown really began to thrive, you know, the, the free market of ownership. And then a few years later in 1620, we have our wonderful pilgrims coming across. They wanted to separate from the Church of England. They did not like, you know, uh, being told how to worship their God. And they practiced Christian communism. And that didn't when they landed in um, Plymouth, Massachusetts. They were actually supposed to go uh, land in New York, but if they had, they would not have lived. There's a wonderful book. So girls, I've kind of uh, skipped on over some books I want to recommend. There's a real, it's like a, I think it's $12 that you can get at Kimber Curriculum on Christopher Columbus. It's a real easy little read, Man of Myth or Man of God, and you can learn the true story of Christopher Columbus. There's also another wonderful book called The Light and the Glory, and it's by the son of Peter Marshall, who was the chaplain for years in the state Senate. Uh, and he he tells us, he gives us beautiful history of um, Joan of Arc and Christopher Columbus and the early pilgrims. I'd really recommending recommend this. Girls, when I recommend books, don't feel like you have to go buy them, but I think they're worth the investment because I'm going to help you build your I Love America library. And even if you don't read every book cover to cover, it'll be on that shelf. And at some point when the time is right, you will pull from it and you will be blessed from it. And even if you just scan it at certain times for certain points, a book I really like recently, it's only a year or two old, it's called The Pilgrim Hypothesis by Timothy Ballard. And he explains some of the history of Christopher Columbus and how he's been done wrong. And kind of, you know, there were some uh, aspects of his uh, discoveries and his voyages that are troubling. He, he, he didn't mean to be a part of that, but some of it is just the men that he brought over. And, and when he died and left and some of the, the legacy of these people conquering, you know, and instilling this harsh ruler's law. He also, if you will Google the Plymouth um, hypothesis on YouTube. He gives an hour uh, presentation on this book. I listened to this book a little while ago, a couple months ago. It was an eight hours on audibles. I listened to the entire book in one day. It was that good. So I would, I'm recommending the Pilgrim Hypothesis with Tim, Timothy Ballard, or just Google his one hour little overview of the book. It's really interesting. It sheds lights on, on the pilgrims. It's so interesting. Um, when those pilgrims came over, there was about 102 of them and over 50 of them died that first winter. There was 18 women that came over on the Mayflower and three fourths of the women died that first winter. And as I really thought about it, and he brings to light in his book, but he said, don't you know, those mothers were the first during that harsh cold winter to lay their little bodies on that children, to give them the food that was meant for mama she gave to her children. And indeed they gave their very lives to, to secure this land that they knew was going to be a land of freedom and liberty and their sacrifices helped secure this republic. And often, you know, I think they helped secure this land. What am I as a mother at this time in these modern perilous days, what am I doing to save this republic? We know what our Mayflower mothers did. And so I love those Mayflower mamas. And so girls, we're kind of coming towards the end. I like to keep our classes at one hour. And, and so I'm not going to necessarily cover the last few pages about how our founding fathers really felt that they had a manifest 
destiny to be an example and a blessing to the entire world and the things that God was going to give them. They were going to try and raise the whole level for all civilizations throughout the world and establish this biblical morality that they were establishing under people's law, under God's law, that they were instituting in the constitution there's just quote after quote from our founding fathers that they knew they had an acute sense of divine election, that they would be a city that would be set upon a hill. They would be a light unto the other nations. And uh, um, John Adams said that what God gave them was going to govern 3 million, but he hoped it would be able to govern up to 300 free men. Our, our population today is 320 million. So what they established for 3 million is still intact today because they knew that human nature never changes. We all desire peace, prosperity, and freedom. And those inspired documents, which they gave us, which was struck off by the hand of God, was going to preserve this, this need as mortal men and women to have peace, prosperity, and freedom. And uh, I love some of the stories that they tell that how they became converted. John Adams tells that story when he was 10 years old and he sat in Boston in that old South um, church in Boston. Have you been there? It exists today. And the French fleet. It was 1746. There was a French fleet that were going to come and burn all the English colonists that lived along that seaboard. And they all converged to pray to God because they didn't know what they could do. And it was a sunshiny day. And as the preacher is preaching from the pulpit in that old South Church in Boston, all of a sudden the winds begin to blow and the shutters are flapping and the bell toils and in comes this vicious storm and hurricane that completely wipes out the 140 French ships and um, and the admiral and the vice admiral French uh, leaders committed suicide when they saw that their mighty armada had been destroyed. And little John Adams at the age of 10, and he was in that church that day and he said, that day I became a patriot because I knew God was in the details of our lives and he answered our little prayers and he loved this land and he rose up to uh, use John Adams to do some great things. He would go on to become the second uh, president of the United States. So girls, these founders knew that they were under covenant of God, that they were part of the remnant of the house of Israel where God promised he would protect them if they were obedient to his laws. And so when little, uh, not little, big George Washington at that time is 6'3", when he took that uh, oath pledge, uh, oath of office to become the president in uh, 1789, he was in New York, that was the capital at the time. And, and he knew that they were evoking this Abrahamic covenant with God. And um, as he held his hand to the square and he placed his hand on the Bible on Genesis, um, chapters 45 and 50. If you go to Federal Hall in New York City, it's in that Wall Street area, they have the Bible inside. There's a little museum and they have it open to Genesis 45 where George Washington had his hand placed on that Bible uh, at 45 and it talks about uh, being a remnant of Joseph and how, oh, where is that? I can't see it. How um, uh, the, the scripture, what is it? It's Genesis 45, 22. I've lost my, my page a little bit, but how the, the boughs of uh, this land would flow over uh, into the walls. And, and, and so his very first act of Congress after he was sworn as, and as, as president is members of Congress walked a few blocks to the St. Paul's church that is still there in New York City. And they had a church service and they made a covenant with, with God that this nation that they were establishing would be one nation under God and that they knew God would protect them as they always looked to him. God loves liberty, girls, if there is any doubt about it. He says repeatedly throughout the Bible, stand fast in liberty in Galatians. He says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the spirit of God is, there will be liberty. 
And so he loves liberty because when we live in an, an environment of maximum freedom, we then have the ability to worship God and to access his power in our life. Think of all throughout history when men and women have been in bondage and haven't been able to freely worship. So he allow this beautiful nation of America to be formed where we would be able to exercise in our, our uh, liberties and worship freely. And this is really the hallmark of our first freedoms in that first amendment. So I hope today, beautiful mamas, that you've been able to see that God's hand in establishing this land was indisputable. As you think of the miracle of little Joan of Arc and Christopher Columbus and the pilgrims and and um, the English who kind of laid the way and were beheaded and killed for the great Magna Cartas and the great freedom documents that our founders would pull from to form our great inspired documents in this nation. So next week, we're going to be at around 1700. America is going to break off from England and you're going to see the birth of this nation and the genius of, Christ, or, um, of Thomas Jefferson and these ancient principles that he used and embedded in the Declaration of, of um, the, uh, in our Declaration of Independence. So as we study specifically in this first seminar, the miracles of, of God's hand in establishing America, it revives our own faith in miracles. And that, look, God was a God of miracles back then, mamas, and he continues to be a God of miracles and to perform miracles. And he will be with us as we do our part, as we hearken, just as these great people throughout history did. As we uh, look to him, you know, not to government to, to solve our problems and tell us what to do, but as we get on our knees and say, God in heaven, I'm worried about this child. I'm worried about my extended family. I'm worried about the schools that my kids go to. What can I do? And then as you continue to study and be in the word and to keep your family close and to raise them up in God and, and to make family time a high priority and to continue to learn these principles that our founders gave us and to learn the principles of the constitution. God, I promise you girls will put into your heart over the next 16 weeks, something that you can do to be a part of the solution. Even if it's just within yourself, if there's something that you need to get right, that alone, when mama changes and when she knows and the direction that mama goes is the direction that her husband goes and her children goes oftentimes. And so anyways, all right, my dear mamas, we have come to the end of section one, um, lesson seminar one, section one today. I meant to tell you, if you have any questions, hang on to them. We'll have a Q&A after each class. You can put questions in the chat. Um, uh, Vivian has probably been moderating and being taking note of anything down below. So girls, you are free to go, but I do want to just invite you. These classes are free. It's summertime. It's not too late to invite, you, you know, your neighbors, your loved ones. We also are going to have this exact class taught on Thursday nights. And my husband and I are going to teach it together. So maybe that might be one way you can rope in a husband or some of your grown kids to see, uh, you know, this isn't just moms for America. This is really families for America. So we'd like to invite you register online for both the Wednesday class and the Thursday class. You have nothing, uh, nothing to lose and make sure you get your manuals. And at that point, I will bid you farewell and stay online if you have any questions or anything you want to add to our class today. So great to have you and we will see you next week.